The woman said, but I can't put my thumb on why I don't want to let you go for a year. The word stage four freaked everybody out. I think putting labels on diagnoses doesn't help a lot. This is Voices, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast that features firsthand experiences from cancer patients. In this episode of Voices, we hear from Duncan, who was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer in October 2015. As you will hear her explain, Duncan isn't fond of the phrase stage 4 and prefers to say that she has, quote, treatable, non-curable cancer. Dr. Eric Weiner, Duncan's oncologist and director of the Breast Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber, joins Duncan to chat about her treatment experience and how she is living life with this, quote, chronic disease. So in November of 2014, I, actually in October, the end of October, I had a first appointment with a new OBGYN Krista Shaker, and uh, it was, our first introduction was great. He uh, found out that he knew my father quite well when he was a resident in a hospital, and my father worked there. He was friendly with my brother, who was a primary care doctor, and they shared patients. I thought I had known this man forever, and I was so glad he came in my life, and the appointment didn't end so well when he asked if he could do a hand exam, and when he was done, he asked when my next mammogram was. And I said, in December, why do you ask? And he said, because your left side doesn't feel so great. Would you ever do a early mammogram so I could get peace of mind that you're okay? Of course, I said yes. And he scheduled it with a doctor in his office the next week. And I went to that mammogram. And like usual, they asked me to stay for an ultrasound because they always say I have dense breasts. I did that. And he said, when I was done, you know, I don't think there's any need to do a biopsy. You're just really hard to read, and I think you're fine. What I would just suggest is that you get on a yearly cycle to have MRIs and have a mammogram once a year. Six months later, get on and have an MRI because you have a family history of breast cancer. And so, of course, I said yes, and he suggested where I go, and four weeks later, I did that. And at the MRI, it was a Friday evening, the woman said, can you stay? Do you have a little bit of time? I'd like to do... I, my first reaction was, yes, but is it really bad? And she kind of laughed and said, Not no, but I can't put my thumb on why I don't want to let you go for a year. I'd just like to do a little bit more screening. Let's do an ultrasound. So we did the ultrasound. And she said, you know, I still can't get my thumb on why I don't want to let you go for a year. I just want to do biopsies and get this over with and make sure that you're clean or not. So she did several biopsies on a Friday evening. And then on that Monday evening, she told me I did, in fact, have breast cancer. And then after a week of a series of tests, she suggested a surgeon at Dana-Farber South Shore IC. And at that point, they'll find out what level of breast cancer I have. So a week later, I went to the surgeon, the oncologist, and the radiologist at Dana-Farber South Shore. And that's when the surgeon informed me that I had stage four and that it spread to my ribs and my pelvis, and that I wasn't a candidate for chemo, radiation, or surgery, but rather I needed to get on drugs immediately to stop the cancer from growing. And that's how this journey all started. 
when I had that MRI on the Friday evening, my husband was at a golf fundraising function. And I was supposed to be somewhere, an hour and a half from then, I was supposed to be helping run a football team dinner. And I got in the car and I said, what if she calls me and tells me I have breast cancer on Monday? And I have this process I do. I don't necessarily recommend it, but when I was younger, I was a very serious tennis player. And one of my idols was Chris Everett. So before a tournament, I must have been 10, I read an article on her and it said that she envisions losing before every tournament so that she can go out and play 100% and not worry about losing because she's already got to the point of envisioning herself losing and realizing it's okay. So now it's sort of a habit I do. I sort of get to the worst place, process it, and then move on. Again, I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but it's what works. For it's what I do. <clears throat> so I got in my cars on Route 9, and I did about a two-mile loop. I just kept doing U-turns and crying and thinking, what did I do? I just ruined my family's life. My husband just became a judge and loves it, and he'll never be able to raise four kids on his salary. And then my oldest loved country music, and country music came on, and and I cried about that, so I changed the station, and I, my son's a junior in college, and I just ruined his graduation, and I went through the line of all the things I did to ruin my kids' future. And then I got to a point of, so, okay, it is what it is. You're the only woman in the house. If the end result is bad, you've got to be strong, and they're going to have to figure it out. If people have figured it out, it's going to be okay. You've got to deal with it. And... I turned that switch on, I ran into Walgreens and got some cheap makeup and went to the football team dinner I had to go to. Um, and so that was my time to deal with it and I did it. And then I was in the process of tell me what I have and let's go to work and work, do whatever else I have to do. And um, so that was sort of my big negative process. And then when I met, I did right from there, on that Monday night when they told me, I did, uh, uh, that I had cancer, I drove home and chose to call each of my kids individually. I'd already talked to my husband and my brother, who's a doctor, had spoken to him. And I called each one in college. And the one that's out of college, I called him first and the next two and then the fourth. And for all of them, I said, listen, I just found out I have cancer. I have no idea what kind of cancer, but don't worry about it because we're not worried about it until we know what I have. Uh, so promise me you won't worry, and I can't answer any questions because I don't have any answers, but I'm fine, and we'll be fine next week, and I'll let you know when I'm going to know what I have. Uh, so I don't know how they handled it because they said, are you sure? And I said, yes, and they said, okay. And I said, okay, go back to studying or whatever you're doing. And then on that Tuesday when I found out it was stage four, uh, it kind of shifted a little bit where the word stage four freaked everybody out. And I really didn't have anything to do about it other than, well, when am I going to Dana-Farber, Boston, if that's where I need to go, and how quickly can I see that doctor so I can figure out what we're doing? But everybody else was, and I could hear their voice, if everybody I called, the first thing everybody did was, huh? And then I could tell afterwards they were probably crying. And um, that was really hard for me, actually. I became crystal clear at the moment that everybody did that, that I don't do well with attention on me if it's sympathy attention. And 
that it wasn't going to work for me to have everybody feeling sorry for me. Well, you know, I may have told you this before, but um, I often tell patients that with the exception of your children and potentially your parents, that if you need to give more support to people around your diagnosis of breast cancer than they give to you, then there's a problem. And, you know, I think all too often, you know, people just don't know how to react and you find yourself as the patient telling people that it's really okay that you have cancer. Um, but that can be a little bit of a drain. So Eric told me that <laughs> and you did tell me that and it was a breakthrough actually for me because I told him I can't deal with the stage thing. Yeah. At my first appointment, my first words out of my mouth were, I just can't deal with it. And he said, don't ever use it again. You have a treatable, non-curable disease. You have a chronic disease like diabetes. And it was, the weight of the world went right off my husband and my shoulders. We just looked at each other with the biggest smile, like, okay, that's over. And then he jumped into what he just said about telling people to go away and come back. Well, you've got to figure out how to manage people. I think it's probably worth anyone listening to this to know that stage four or metastatic breast cancer is something that often arises after someone's been treated for breast cancer in the past. In fact, that's the most common situation. Probably about 90% of people who have metastatic breast cancer, maybe a little bit less than 90, actually have been treated for breast cancer at some point a year, two years, 10 years ago, and then have a recurrence of breast cancer to their bones or their liver or their lungs or some other place. But there is a group of women, like you, who from the initial time of diagnosis actually have the cancer that has already spread outside of the breast. And in some cases, it's because the cancer just couldn't be easily detected in the breast for a long period of time because some breasts are very dense and the cancer can be growing there for a long time and you just don't find it. In some cases it's because people don't get health care, which obviously wasn't the case in, in your situation. And in some cases it's because the cancer is actually very fast growing, which is also not the case in your situation. But Generally speaking, I think putting labels on diagnoses doesn't help a lot. Calling something metastatic breast cancer because metastatic breast cancer is in and of itself so heterogeneous, it's so variable, I don't think does a lot of good. And I think that what people need to focus on is the fact that this is a very treatable condition. I have trouble with disease as a term, but condition. and. Unfortunately, it is something that ultimately is life-threatening. So it's a little different from diabetes in the sense that most people don't think of diabetes as something that ultimately ends your life, although it can. But I guess the other point that's very important is there's a lot of research going on. And if it's almost a certainty that we're going to have new drugs and new treatments available during the course of your lifetime that you're going to be able to take advantage of. So what we have today may not even be a fraction of what we ultimately have five or ten years from now because there's just such an explosion of, 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 of the understanding of, of breast cancer, 
cancer in general, and then taking that and, and really developing new treatments you know, f from this new understanding of cancer. So when you told me that, which is something else you told me at our first appointment, that my job was to go live my life fully every day because you had solutions today and when... And hopes for tomorrow. Hopes for tomorrow when they stop working that you probably will have something new and hopefully that'll continue for many, many years or a period of time. Yep. Um, and that my job was to not worry and just go trust and live my life fully. And it that does work. You know, so when I do worry... And it's, it's not meant to be paternalistic. It's yeah. meant to, to say, you know, there's only so much worrying you can do in any given day. And worrying today doesn't help you live your life better tomorrow. I mean, you can't ignore it and you can't just put it up on a shelf in the closet and, and pretend that it doesn't exist. But you also can't live with that worry right in front of your face 24 hours a day. When I take what you asked me to do the first day, which was to trust you. And I'll never forget you saying, cancer's like surfing, you'll have high waves and low waves. When the high waves, ride them and enjoy them. And when in the low waves, promise to stay on the board and reach out to us, because we'll help you stay on the board. And when I shift to finally breaking down and saying, all right, you don't like to complain or bother them, but reach out to Eric and Jen and just tell them what you're worried about. Usually, I think it's been 100% of the time, the reply, which is usually very quick, lets me realize it's fine. I don't have to worry. I have my back. And when I see them next, unless they tell me I have to come in, uh, they're going to take care of it and I can go back to doing what I do. And I've actually translated into business and everything. So when I get a little bit stressed about our business, I start to think, does it really matter? And my cancer's given me the opportunity to step away and say, does this really matter? Is it that big of a deal in your life? You know, everybody may die in four years, but you could probably be more likely than somebody else to possibly go. So is it really matter? Or just enjoy it and get done what you have to get done and move on. Well, you know, unfortunately, life is pretty unpredictable. And, you know, not that one can remotely trivialize having a diagnosis of metastatic or advanced breast cancer, and it is something that can threaten your life in addition to all the other things out there that can threaten your life. Um, so, you know, it, I think many people don't really like the, the, the comment that, well, you know, anyone can be hit by a bus because you can be hit by a bus and you have metastatic breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So th there, is, there is really something there. On the other hand, I think that we're all far more fragile as individuals than we recognize much of the time. Bad things, unfortunately, can happen, whether they're illnesses or accidents or terrorist acts, you know, at, at all sorts of times. And when you have something like this, though, you become acutely aware of your potential mortality. And I think that's what you have to manage so that you don't spend all of your time thinking about it. And, you know, recognize that, thankfully, you're doing great at the moment. And you've been doing great since you were diagnosed, really. There are people who don't do as well. And those people have a, have a 
harder time, um, both a harder time in terms of dealing with symptoms from cancer and a harder time dealing with it emotionally. But it is, it is very much different from one individual to the next, and, and it's up to each person and, and the people who take care of them to try to get them through the whole experience. No, I do, I know this sounds crazy, but I do feel fortunate that I'm at the stage four level out of the gate because the treatment hasn't been as invasive to my body. Um, and I do know people that have had a lower level, not sure that that means a lot, but um, have had a much more difficult process when they've first been diagnosed. And it's been far more disruptive to their whole life. So when Duncan was diagnosed, the cancer had already spread to her bones. And surgery, while it could technically be done on her breast, wouldn't fix the problem in the bones because we can't cut out all of the bones. And radiation could be given if there were symptoms that needed to be addressed but doesn't need to be given. Chemotherapy is something that we can always give, whether someone has early stage breast cancer or later stage breast cancer, but chemotherapy comes with it a lot of side effects. And so when we give chemotherapy to somebody who's newly diagnosed with an early stage breast cancer, it's to prevent a recurrence. In Duncan's case, we can't prevent a recurrence because she's already had the cancer that has spread. And we don't need to use chemotherapy up front it's always there to be used at some point in the future if we ever need it. And not all chemotherapy is horrible. There's, there are plenty of chemotherapy regimens that are actually not much more difficult than the, than the hormonal approaches that we've taken with, with Duncan. But for somebody who has estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, as Duncan has, the most effective treatment is hormonal or endocrine therapy. And these are therapies that disrupt the hormonal environment that the cancer lives in. For estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, hormones stimulate the growth of, of cancer, or that, that is estrogen stimulates the growth of cancer. And giving these drugs can block that stimulation or lower estrogen levels so that it's not around to lead to the growth of the cancer. And, and now we not only have these hormonal agents, and I know it's confusing for people, I call them hormonal agents, but they're really anti-hormones. But we not only have these drugs, but we have drugs that supercharge them so that we can give hormonal therapy and we can give it in combination with something else that makes it work that much better. So the whole landscape of cancer therapy is, is changing. And again, I'm, I've been struck over the past few years by how much progress has been made. And after really a decade or more of feeling like not much had been accomplished, we're really in a very different place now. And I think Duncan feels that. When I think about uh, how my life has changed since I had cancer, I actually keep thinking it's just that much more robust 
I mean, it brings in a couple of barriers here and there, but I've met, so I met Eric and Jen, which you I You meet think... all sorts of fun people like us. <laughs> just, just what you wanted. You, but you just didn't want to meet us at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. You'd like to meet us at a party. Exactly. It'd probably be fun at a party, but I did meet you at Dana-Farber. And, um, and that's been an added learning process and value. But it's also... Um, it's made me take care of myself better. I thought I took care of myself well, but I was someone that could get to three o'clock in a day and realize I hadn't eaten anything. So I'm just so busy in theory. Um, now I make sure I eat my three balanced emails a day. I'm someone who would stay up till midnight doing laundry or emails and then get up at four or 4.30 to go for my run. Now I try to balance my sleep better. But also- I should take lessons from you. I, <laughs> No, you are bad. He emails back. You email back to me at two thirty, three thirty, four thirty in the morning. But um, I also, I just as I mentioned earlier, I have things in perspective. I don't keep them in perspective, but when I get out of perspective, I bring them back. I was thinking the other day, I was, I was a little nasty to somebody at work, and afterwards, I, I always feel guilty when I do that. And then I thought, I, now I go back to, is that how I want them to think about me when I'm not here, that that's how I treat them? And I tend to go back and clean it up, which I'm not sure I would have done as quickly in the past. Uh, so it helps me put that in perspective. So I really feel, for me, yeah, sometimes it brings extra worry. It's taken time coming in here to see, go to my appointments. And, but I try to use that as my time, so there's a new challenges in my life to manage around all the other things I'm doing. But um, if I look at things that maybe it's gotten in the way of my cancer versus the things it's brought into my life, I think on the scale, what it's brought into my life is much higher than extra challenges it's brought into my life. Not that you would ever have chosen to get this. No. And for sure, it's not something anybody would choose to get. No. But you know, look, to the extent that you can take a little bit of positive out of what is a difficult experience, you're that much better yeah. off. No. And, you know, I think that most of us are pretty hopeful that 10 years from now, 12 years from now, I don't know, 15 years from now, um, that when a woman is diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, that we'll be able to say that we have treatments available for her that, who knows, maybe even will be curative, but if not, will be effective enough that people don't have to lose their life from the disease if they, if they have medical care available to them. I think one of the biggest challenges we're all gonna face as our treatments get better is that there are tremendous inequities in, in how healthcare is delivered, both in the U.S. and around the world. And it doesn't matter so much when you don't have effective treatments if people can't get them because they're not very good. But the better the treatments get, the more important that becomes. And I think that's going to be our, that may be our big challenge 10 and 15 years from now, not so much the fact that we don't have good treatments. I feel really great about trying to find the avenues to share that voice because it's not just for me. Hey, hey, maybe it'll make me live longer if they'll help me, but I do believe with your Embrace program and all the other things you're doing that you will find a cure, hopefully in my time, but if not, 
I think people knowing that this money is so important, is, um, it's been a pleasure to be able to use my voice to do that. Well, you know, it's, it's, we appreciate it. And, you know, we're lucky here because we have a big team. And it, it's not about any individual. It's about the whole team that includes all the clinicians and researchers um, and everyone who supports us and our patients and their families. And, you know, the way we're going to solve these problems is with the team. Before we end, I just have to tell one story. You have to understand that Duncan is a very unique person. So that was best shown by her Christmas gift to me this mm. past year. Duncan shows up at my office with a snowshoe. Now, you would think that most of the time if you're going to give someone a snowshoe, you would give another snowshoe. And in fact, she did this both for me and for several of our, our nurses. And on the snowshoe, it said, it, there were in quotations, you will live with this for many, many years. She had checked off one year because she had already been living with this one year. And at the bottom, it said, one half pair of snowshoes for every five years. I put it in context for you. So in March of last year, I went snowshoeing with my husband, who is a snowshoer, I'm not. And we went up the back of the Blue Hills to the top, and I think I'm in better shape than him, and I was behind him. You are. Well, I was behind him, and I was like, man, he's not as winded as I am. I was kind of annoyed. And we got to the top, and I said, Tom, that was really, really hard. And he said, coming down is actually harder. That last steep incline is really hard coming down. And... So we, I thought, yeah, right, I'll show him coming down, kick his butt, right? And we went down, and he went ahead, and I was absolutely scared. I was like, oh, my gosh, we have no poles or anything. And I think, I'm going to go flat on my face or backwards. And so I'm trying to improvise for the snowshoes. And I went sliding on the back of him, slid down on my back, and it hurt. And I also remember thinking, I better not hit this tree. <laughs> the last thing I can do is die from hitting a tree when I have everything else going on in my life. And Tom turned around as I was on the ground, and I banged my hand. I said, I'm so frustrated. I just have to let the snowshoes do their job. And he started laughing, and he said, you're right. That's what the cleats are for. And I thought, yeah, that's what the cleats are for. Get up and use the cleats. So I did, and I started going down, and I literally, within seconds, am running down the hill because the cleats worked. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's Eric, Jen, Kathy, and Liz. They're my cleats. And he told me to use them and let them do their job so I could enjoy life and go live my life fully. And so they're my cleats. And so their job is to, they don't get the other half pair until they've been doing their job for five years. <laughs> so. If, I, if I'm uh, getting another snowshoe, I gotta wait for four more years now, and, but I'm, I'm going for at least two pairs of snowshoes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices, featuring breast cancer patient Duncan and her oncologist, Dr. Eric Weiner, director of the Breast Oncology Program and the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. To hear more episodes of Voices and learn about other podcasts from Dana-Farber, 
visit www.danafarber.org slash podcasts 